This is All In. I'm Matt Pelser. NASCAR closes out its regular season this weekend in Indianapolis with the Big Machine Vodka 400 at the Brickyard, which got us thinking here at All In. There's not a lot of obvious intersect between the public radio audience and the NASCAR audience, but we know of and appreciate the diversity of roles that need to come together to make something like this happen and get hundreds of thousands of people to show up to it. So we're nothing if not curious about this huge annual event here in Indianapolis, and I'm certain we'll leave here pleasantly surprised today at some of the interesting history of NASCAR in Indy. Joining us is the president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Doug Bowles. Thanks for making time for us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. Uh, Some of us listening might be surprised to know that until the mid-90s, more than 80 years after the track was built, there was no other annual races at the Speedway other than the Indy 500. You know, that's that's absolutely true. So when the racetrack was was built in 1909, uh, the first races were held in 1909 and 1910. And so they had a multiple uh, series of uh, weekend events and races over the course of those two years. And at the end of 1910, uh, the founders said, you know what, let's just focus on one race a year. So in 1911, we had the first Indianapolis 500. And with the, with the, with one exception in 1916, before World War One, they had a uh, they had a race in the in the fall of that year as well. With that one exception, there was not another race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway other than the Indy 500 until the Brickyard came in 1994. And since then, really, those were the only two events until you got to Formula One in 2000. And now if you think about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, uh, you know that it's a, a multi-event facility and not just public racing events, but we have all kinds of other activities that take that take place there. So it is basically a big, uh, a big switch, big pivot from what was the original uh, mission of the Indy 500 and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway starting in 1911. Yeah, these days we're we're so used to you being so busy there with with an event uh, very often, especially uh, in in the summertime, and it all started uh, with. A Craftsman Tools commercial, of all things, that was being filmed at the track with four-time Indy 500 winner A.J. Foyt, who was a driver for NASCAR at the time, and he brought his car with him, my guess, in hopes that he would be able to drive it around the track, and and he indeed did with one of your predecessors, then-Speedway President Tony George, who took a few laps. This was 1991. Was this the first time a stock car had ever hit the pavement at the track? Well, I think really officially, and I don't know, uh, you know, there's all kinds of weird, the neat thing about the Speedway is just all the history and all the all the backstories and the things that you hear. And I learn something new every day about something of our history that's maybe not published. But we really think that was the first kind of public um, opportunity for a NASCAR car to present itself at the Speedway. And back then, the, the tradition of the Indy 500 only was so was so deep and so important that the only way you could probably introduce a NASCAR car to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was through its its icon, A.J. Foyt. So A.J. probably was able to uh, bring the NASCAR brand to the Speedway without all of the negative focus that might have been if had you just let a regular uh, NASCAR driver come through at that point in time. And, and A.J. is one of those unique drivers who obviously the Indy 500 is what made him, but he also won the Daytona 500, was competitive in a lot of NASCAR races throughout his career. Uh, so that was an easy way to say, let's try this, but let's do it still with paying that that major respect to what the Indy 500 means to the facility. It's a, and so that got the people talking and it got the ball rolling at or rather the tires rolling, I guess, on the question of whether or not the Speedway should host a NASCAR race. And so what what then happened next? A lot had to happen before August of 94. Yeah, so so there was a there was the first official NASCAR test where there's you know several drivers came in and did a test at the at the speedway uh, to see if in fact they thought that the cars could run there and compete there not just one car 
but several cars to understand the aerodynamics and our track is relatively narrow compared to other racetracks. It's certainly a lot less banked than some of the bigger, faster uh, NASCAR tracks for NASCAR cars. So they had to make sure that that was uh, that it was going to work at the speedway. So that test came about. And then ultimately the announcement that in 1994, we'd host the first Brickyard 400 at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And it's funny, you talk about, you know, what you had to do to get there and what was the feeling about it. Even still today, 26 Brickyards in uh, this September, uh, there are still people who I'll run into who can't believe that NASCAR is running at the Speedway. And it feels like a brand new event still because in comparison to 103 runnings of the Indy 500, 26 is, is still in its infancy. But it's turned out to be a, a, be, a, be a fun relationship, and we love working with the NASCAR guys. And the drivers that, that compete and win there uh, really understand the history of the place, and that's why it's special to them to win at the Speedway. Yeah, 1994 doesn't seem that long ago. But let's look at August 14th, 1994, the inaugural Brickyard 400. A huge success right away. More than a quarter million people at the track for that that first race and several races thereafter. And then a big effort was made so that the Brickyard wouldn't outshine that other famous race at the track. Tell us what changes were made between late May and late July in those early years. Well, one of the things, because the Brickyard sold out and the Indy 500 sold out, too, and there was such demand for that first Brickyard 400. I mean, just everybody wanted to say they were there for the first Brickyard 400, that there was a lottery system uh, to, to figure out who was going to get the tickets because the demand was you know, three to four times the number of seats that were actually there at the Speedway. And they knew that if they said, okay, here's what the seats are, but we'll have GA and people can fill in the infield like they do for the Indy 500, there was concern that uh, so many people would buy a GA ticket for that first race just to say that they were there, that it could um, possibly sell more tickets than the Indy 500 did. And the Indy 500 is the world's largest single-day sporting event, and it would be weird to say, except for the first time the Brickyard was at the place. So they didn't sell, they didn't sell a GA ticket. So there was nobody in the infield. Uh, unless they had a unless they had a reserved seat, so there wasn't that uh, snake pit crowd and some of the things that you have around the Indy 500, uh, and that was a way to make sure that the numbers for the Brickyard 400, that first one, uh, were going to always be less than an Indy 500. Doug Bowles, as you look back on uh, 400 events that you've been involved with, and 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 certainly those before your time, what do you see as some of the signature moments of this race, the NASCAR race at the Speedway? Well, the two that come to the top of my head in terms of the, the, the Brickyard, and I've been fortunate enough to t- attend every one of them, um, obviously, Indiana kid Jeff Gordon getting his win in the first Brickyard 400 goes down as one of the most special moments, maybe the most special moment in Brickyard history, and in a lot of ways in Indianapolis Motor Speedway history, because you know Jeff Gordon had spending so much of his youth racing in Indiana and wanting to run at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, that, that is one of those moments that I think will... Uh, always be a top uh, Brickyard moment. The other one for me that uh, lives on now beyond uh, the Brickyard is, uh, you know, the, the kissing of the bricks is a, is a NASCAR thing that started at it, it by Dale Jarrett and his crew. And, and that's been picked up by everybody now. So the Indy 500 winners, you know, everybody goes out to kiss the bricks when they win. And that's rooted in NASCAR, not rooted in uh, the IndyCar side of things. And it's really now something that uh, we have a kiss the bricks tour. So if people want to come to the Speedway every day, they can go by the museum and hop on a bus and get out and kiss the bricks. It's become it's become the Blarney Stone of uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. You know, everybody needs to go uh, needs to go kiss it and, and be around that. So that's that's one of the other things I think that has come from. Uh, the Brickyard that uh, that has uh, really been special, not just to that event, but to the Speedway and our other events uh, altogether. 
Ah, and indeed, I've been invited to go and do that and have always been busy. I need to make some time to come out there uh, in, 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 and do that. In recent years, the schedule has shuffled around a little bit. Traditionally, the race has uh, been held in late July, early August, but starting last year, the 25th running of the race, uh, and then again this year, it's moved into early September. Why is that? Well, it's just a little bit... <laughs> A little bit of frustration, really, with the date over the last couple of years, especially since next year we're moving to July 4th weekend. But one of the one of the biggest complaints we've had over the years related to the Brickyard from our fans perspective is that July in Indiana in the summer sitting in aluminum bleachers that aren't covered is pretty hot. And that's one of the things we hear from customers as our attendance has declined over the years. Uh, that's the one big factor that people say, hey, it's just too hot to sit in the in those bleachers outside on a you know 90 plus degree uh, July day in Indiana. So we had talked to NASCAR about moving away from that date and the September date came up. The other thing for us, the race, uh, while it means something to win at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, it didn't necessarily mean anything with respect to uh, the championship uh, for NASCAR. So but by moving us to that last race in the regular season where the championship field is set, the regular season champion is crowned, those those pieces made a lot of sense for us in September. Earlier this year, NASCAR reached out to us and said, hey, we'd love to move you to July 4th weekend uh, in 2020. So next year we'll we'll move again, and uh, hopefully we can make something grow around uh, owning two of the biggest American weekends of the year with the 500 and Memorial Day and then the Brickyard around, uh, around uh, Independence Day. I, the last few years, and you kind of touched on this, the last few years have been a little rough on the race attendance-wise, and, and really the weather hasn't been on your side, for one thing. Uh, lots of red flags in 2017. The race wasn't over with until nighttime that year, and then last year we, it got completely rained out. They had to move it to Monday. Only 20,000 people were there at the actual race last year. Uh, what, what other things are being done to address the issue of attendance? Well, hopefully around July 4th, we'll be able to build, we're going to build, we're trying to build an entire event weekend around that weekend. Part of what we did with uh, the BC 39, our dirt track race last year, and again this year, tying it to the Brickyard was a way to uh, connect to the short track fans and give them a reason to come to the Indianapolis Merch Speedway. So we built a quarter mile uh, dirt track in the infield and several of the NASCAR drivers and even Connor Daly IndyCar driver participated in the race last year. And again, this year uh, doing that. So as a way to really reach out to uh, short track fans around the Midwest in particular, say, hey, come on to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So that'll move back with the Brickyard in July. And, and, this, and that, so this year will be the second, next year will be the third year. That event, uh, we saw a significant uptick in our NASCAR sales just because of people who came down and spent the weekend. And then we're going to add some more elements with the big machine a relationship and having Florida Georgia Line Fest, that music will expand in 2020, as well as uh, we'd love to figure out a way to do some sort of food or beer fest around the weekend to try and just give fans more reason to come hang out at the Speedway, not just what's happening on the racetrack. All right, take off your president hat. Let's look at, let's look at this year. What specifically are you looking forward to on Sunday uh, that, that'll be fun for you for the race? Well, you know, for me, I, I always look forward to the, to the beginning of, you know, of the race when the cars line up and things get started, just like a lot of fans. And, and uh, something a little bit unique this year that I'm excited about, first, I don't think we've ever had – more than the race itself on race day in the 25 previous events. Uh, this year, we're going to actually qualify on race morning. So you won't know what the field's going to be until race morning. And then the teams are going to have to quickly get back in race setup and roll out and go racing. So I think that'll add a new element to uh, the way cars qualify and the way that they, they, the way they end up racing. So I think there could be some 
there's, there could be a couple uh, wild cards that take place uh, because of the way that new formats that new format is laying out. So I'm, I'm 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 particularly excited about that for this year. The other thing I always get excited about for the weekend is I love the hauler parade and the, on Main Street at Town of Speedway and and the NASCAR Cup drivers bring in their their haulers and park them in the fans. We had last year we had over five thousand people, even in the rough weather, just wandering through, uh, looking at the trucks, talking to the truck drivers. We had six or seven of the Monster Energy Cup drivers show up. Uh, so that's that's another highlight of the weekend for me that I that I appreciate the, the NASCAR teams going out of their way to help us connect with uh, with customers and fans in, in uh, Central Indiana. Speedway President Doug Bowles talking with us about the history of the race, formerly known as the Brickyard 400. This year, it's the Big Machine Vodka 400 at the Brickyard. And, of course, it happens Sunday at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Mr. Bowles, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. I look forward to seeing people at the racetrack. And uh, we'll get through number 26. And then we get to, we get to start counting down to the 104th running of the 8500, which is uh, my favorite day of the year. Indeed. Up next, we'll chat with Indiana native Chase Briscoe about growing up in a racing family and what it's like to drive for fellow Hoosier Tony Stewart's team. I'm Matt Pelser. Back in two minutes. This is All In. This is All In. I'm Matt Pelser. We're talking about racing culture in Indiana just a few days before the 26th running of the NASCAR race, formerly known as the Brickyard 400. It's now the Big Machine Vodka 400 at the Brickyard, and it takes place Sunday at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. The day before, on Saturday, the NASCAR Xfinity Series puts on the Indiana 250 at the track, and I'm talking with one of the drivers competing in that race, Mitchell, Indiana native Chase Briscoe. Chase, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're also going to be racing on the dirt track tonight, too, right? Yeah, I'm going to be doing a little bit of double duty this week. So uh, I got the midget race tonight and then uh, run the Xfinity car on the big track on Saturday. So it's going to be a fun week. It's not very often I get to run two races in the same week anymore. Now that I don't do a lot of dirt stuff. So it's fun to always kind of go back to my roots and, and be able to do both. Are you approaching tonight's race as just sort of a fun aside, or do you take every single race seriously? No, I mean, I definitely take it seriously. I mean, we go there to win, but at the same time, it is nice because on the NASCAR side, it's it's a job. I mean, it's not a hobby. It's, it's full on. That's your job. There's a lot of stress that goes along with that. You know, we're battling for a points championship right now, so... It'll be nice to kind of go dirt track racing tonight and not have any of that stress. It, it really doesn't matter if I win or, or run dead last. It's just going to be fun regardless. So uh, I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. But at the same time, we're definitely going there to win. That That's the whole reason we do it. But um, it'll be fun nonetheless. So you're racing midgets tonight. Can you just des- can you describe what that is? Remember, this is perhaps not a traditional racing audience. <laughs> yeah. So uh, a midget, it's hard to explain if you don't know what a sprint car is either, but so I grew up racing sprint cars. So in Indiana, sprint cars are it's kind of the, the capital of non-wing sprint car racing. So a sprint car is roughly 1,200 pounds and has 900 horsepower. So power to weight wise, it's it's probably the hardest car to drive in my opinion. And, and a midget is just a smaller form essentially of a sprint car, and they still weigh around eight to 900 pounds and have around 400 horsepower. So they're four-cylinder engines. Uh, Ford has an engine. Toyota has an engine. Mopar. But they're open-wheel race cars. A lot of the the guys you see in NASCAR and a long time ago IndyCar grew up racing these. So they're uh, awesome little race cars. Like I said, super quick, uh, open wheels, so we flip a lot, um, beating and banging and and throwing a lot of mud at the same time. So if you've never done it, definitely 
come on out tonight to, to IMS and it'll be a, a show that you won't want to forget. Yeah. And Chase, I'm really glad you're talking to us today. This is, this is kind of your opportunity to connect NASCAR and racing with an audience who perhaps isn't traditionally the one that people think of when they think of race fans. And, and, but our audience is definitely one that's curious about a lot of things, but maybe hesitant to get into it because there are a lot of unfair stereotypes out there about NASCAR culture. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think there there certainly is a, a few out there that I don't think necessarily correlate over. But yeah, for sure. I mean, if you've never been to a race, I, I definitely suggest coming out to it. At least give it a shot once. I think you're, you'll be surprised how much fun you have. Uh, there's a lot of things to do there other than watch the race. There's countless times people go to the race and never even watch a lap. There's there's a lot of other things to do at the racetrack. And IMS does a, a really good job of, of doing that. And I think the cool thing about IMS, especially if you've never been to a race, and you're from here in Indiana, you know, Indianapolis Motor Speedway is probably the most historic racetrack in the world. So, I mean, you get to go to a place where it's almost like hollowed grounds. I mean, people have so much respect when they go there. There's a Hall of Fame there. There's so many things to do and see. And honestly, you go in there, there's a golf course in the infield. I mean, it's a beautiful facility. So definitely, if you've never been to a race, come check it out. Uh, You can come to, obviously, the Xfinity race on Saturday, the dirt race tonight, or even the cup race on Sunday, just uh, it's it's a really good time. The weather's going to be nice, so definitely come on out. You've been driving for the Xfinity Series for a few years now, which for those who aren't familiar with NASCAR, it's sort of the it's sort of the second tier right behind the big time, which right now is known as the Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series. That's where you'll find drivers like Kyle Busch and Kevin Harvick, Joey Logano. In years past, the Xfinity Series was known as the Bush Series for a long time. For you, though, it all started back home here in Indiana. I kind of want to go through your racing career and talk about the places here in Indiana where you grew up racing. And to to really get into this, you have to start young. How old were you when you first got behind the wheel of a race car? Yeah, so I, I honestly kind of started out later than a lot of people. You know, a lot of kids start out, honestly, when they're three, four, five years old. I didn't start until <laughs> oh, I was seven. Uh, and even when I raced when I was seven, I only raced twice. And I didn't race again until I was 11. So, uh, yeah, like you said, kind of got to start into it. My, my my grandpa's owned sprint cars since 1976 and had a lot of the legends in sprint car racing drive for him. And my dad raced for 22 years himself in sprint cars, won over 200 races. So I, I kind of just grew up around the dirt track here in Indiana. And there's so many amazing dirt tracks in Indiana. I grew up mainly at Bloomington, Putnamville, uh, Lawrenceburg, Hopsot, uh, Kokomo. There's a lot of really big racetracks in Indiana that have i mean huge crowds every single week and just great racing so that's what i grew up doing um but yeah i I got my start doing that and i I moved into sprint cars when i was 13 which at the time was super young you know racing against adults but uh you know that's the cool thing about indiana If, if if you're in indiana there's obviously really good basketball around you and really good racing and uh you know i was definitely fortunate to to live in an area where racing was so big We'll get back to your career timeline in in just a bit, but let's talk about the resources here in Indiana that kind of helped you and your family make their way in the racing world. A lot of small town tracks, of course, but you must have relied a lot on the culture, the people. Tell me about some of the Hoosiers who you looked up to and who really helped you out in those early years back home. Yeah, I don't know about necessarily helping me out, but at the time, you know, growing up and even today, the guys I looked up to that were Indiana guys is on, now my boss. I mean, Tony Stewart was the guy that was my hero growing up. You know, I, I looked up to him, uh, and, and it's pretty neat now to say that I get a drive for the guy that was my hero growing up. And 
you know, the other guy other than my dad and him was Steve Kinzer. If you're a sprint car fan, you know who Steve Kinzer is. And, you know, he grew up 25 minutes down the road in Bloomington from where I was in Mitchell. So, you know, to have probably the, the greatest sprint car driver of all time right down the road, uh, it was pretty neat and a guy that I definitely looked up to. Let's talk about Tony Stewart since you brought him up. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> what's what's he like as a boss these days? Oh, he's awesome. Uh, people don't realize how nice of a guy Tony is. He does so many things behind the scenes to, to help people out, and just he has a heart of gold. And it's it's sad how sometimes he gets a bad rap because he's literally the nicest guy you've ever met in your life. And it's uh, it's intimidating though to have him as a boss, just because, like I said, he was the guy I looked up to growing up. I had the the Tony Stewart stuff hung up all in my room at home, and I had the Home Depot helmet and uniform growing up. So. I mean, he was he was my guy. So it's uh, so surreal, even to this day, that you know he's my boss and just a phone call or a text away, and you know he comes to the race and will give us support. So it's pretty unbelievable that just a small town Indiana kid uh, has Tony Stewart as his boss. But it's it's so super good. I mean, anytime you can have somebody like Tony's experience in your back corner, it's uh, such a blessing for especially a young guy like myself that doesn't have the most experience in these types of cars to to be able to go to him where you know he's he's won in just about anything and everywhere so he definitely has the experience and and the you know the resume to go with it so what is his his role then as a team owner i mean is he a is he a driving mentor for you yeah for sure i i mean at at the places where i feel like i struggle you know tony is normally one of the first guys i go to or if i've never been to a track before I'll, i'll text or call tony and just talk to him about you know little tips and tricks i need to focus on but you know, Tony's still busy himself racing sprint cars now. He races over 90 races a year. So he doesn't get to come to the track as much um, just because he's still out racing quite a bit. But he definitely, throughout the week, anytime you need anything, is, like I said, just a phone call away. And, again, for people who aren't familiar, sprint cars are, are lightweight, powerful, open-wheel cars with a roll cage. You often see them with those wings on top. And the 410s are, are the most powerful kind. And it was racing those that you broke a record held by a NASCAR legend who everyone's heard of. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was a, a super cool thing to do, first off, was when I was 13, like you said, I was able to, to win a sprint car race. It was actually the last race of the season and didn't know it at the time, but come to find out it broke Jeff Gordon's record for being the youngest driver ever winning one. So anytime you can do anything with Jeff Gordon, it's obviously uh, very humbling. So I did that, and then, like I said, we just kept racing sprint cars from then on out. But, yeah, I felt like that was kind of the first thing that not put me on the map, but just got my name out there to especially the NASCAR uh, communities. And it's worth noting, of course, that the reason we're doing this show is because of the Brickyard this weekend, and Jeff Gordon won the first Brickyard back in 1994, the very year you were born. And you're... You're kind of doing all this in your early career uh, without all the resources other sprint car drivers might have. You were doing it on a budget, like you said. You're driving a car with an engine that was older than you, an old chassis. You learned to adapt to circumstance pretty early on. Uh, I'm guessing that helped gear you for harder and harder races and different equipment. Yeah, for sure. I think it definitely makes you appreciate uh, what I have now at a place like Stuart Haas where the race cars are so good. You know, when you drive... Uh, just lesser equipment it's it's obviously tougher to do and they don't handle as well and I feel like you just learn so many more um, you know it's just so much more stuff you know driving that lesser stuff for when you do get in the good stuff it just makes it easier and you know like you said growing up didn't have the nicest sprint car stuff by any means and 
uh, how to work for everything. I, I moved down to North Carolina straight out of high school and was sleeping on couches and just volunteering at race shops, trying to get an opportunity. And uh, somehow I was fortunate enough to, to get one at an ARCA team and uh, kind of progressed to where we're at now. Yeah. So you make your ARCA debut here at home at Lucas Oil Raceway, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was super cool for me that, you know, in the first year, I never thought I would even get a, to run an ARCA race. And like I said, I was volunteering at the, at the race team shop. And uh, the first race I got to run was at Indianapolis or an IRP there uh, at Lucas Oil. And the second race I got to run was at Salem, which was literally 20 minutes from where I grew up. And that was the, you know, those were the two ARC races that I went to growing up. Those were the only two pavement races I really went to a year. And it kind of was neat for me to come back full circle and be able to run those two races when those were, that's really what, you know, the first time I ever saw ARCA or, or knew of ARCA was going to those races. So it was definitely a, a neat experience for me. And let, let's step back to the Speed Channel Stock Car Dream Challenge, which was 2013. You practically swept this thing. You came in first in every competition except for one, and where you finished second. Do you kind of consider this the beginning of your NASCAR career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, without that opportunity on that show, uh, I never get to drive a stock car, never know if I could even do it. And I always felt like, personally, it would fit my driving style more, but uh, you're always unsure if you've never done it. So that was the opportunity that, that let me, you know, go and even try to drive a stock car on pavement. I'd never even driven on pavement before that. So I uh, did that, and that was kind of what kick-started um, the whole NASCAR thing and moving away to North Carolina. Um, so North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina is the hub for NASCAR. Uh, if you're going to make it in NASCAR, you got to be down here. This is where every single race team is at. So I uh, moved down here right after that and started, like I said, volunteering at race teams, just trying to get either a test or whatever, and uh, slowly worked my way into a couple doors and was able to get a test and an opportunity. But, yeah, that, that Stock Car Dream Challenge on Speed Channel was certainly the thing that kind of kick-started me into this direction. So you, you, you drove then for NASCAR K&N West Series. You made your ARCA debut and uh, did a few races uh, for them. And you uh, are then put in the Ford Performance Driver Development Program. What does that mean? Yeah, so the Ford Performance Development Driver Program is, uh, as a race car driver, honestly, I think getting with a manufacturer is the best thing you can do. So I'm the only driver for Ford as far as a development driver. And what that means is is I'm not tied to one team. I, I can go run, for for example, a NASCAR Penske Racing. I can drive for Roush Fenway or I can drive for Stuart Haas. Any team that's a Ford, uh, I'm kind of the first guy uh, to have availability for that ride. So uh, that means it comes with funding. So Ford pays, you know, my way to go race. Uh, it obviously costs a lot of money to go put cars on the racetrack. And um, even in other series, it allows me to go race. Last year, I got to run a lot of IMSA sports car endurance racing. They get better at road courses. And I get to run a truck series race. And obviously now the full Xfinity series. So being tied with the manufacturer and having that tie-in is uh, the best thing you can have as a young driver. Let's talk about trucks. A few years later, you start uh, racing trucks for what was then the NASCAR Camping World Truck Series. We talked about your adaptability with equipment. How different is it to race trucks? Uh, it's definitely different. You know, every time you get into a, a different type of vehicle, uh, especially at the speeds we're going upwards of uh, some places 200 miles an hour, downforce and aerodynamics is so big. And obviously a, a truck is shaped quite a bit different than what a stock car is. And they have a lot more downforce, but at the same time, that means they drive a lot worse in traffic because you don't have that downforce on your car. So 
uh, the trucks were definitely a little bit of a learning curve, um, but it was super neat. You know, I got to drive for a NASCAR champion and Brad Keselowski. And when I first moved to North Carolina, the first race team I ever volunteered for was Brian Keselowski and Bob Keselowski, his, his dad and brothers. So it's kind of neat how it's all came back full circle and I got to drive for him in my first truck series. Yeah, and you won Rookie of the Year in 2017. That must have felt pretty good. Yeah, for sure. You know, anytime you're you're moving up, uh, you always just kind of question yourself, especially at this level if you're ready. Um, you know, there, there's kind of three national series in NASCAR. There's the Cup Series, which is on Sunday, uh, the Xfinity Series, and then the Truck Series. And, you know, each one of those steps is a big step up in, in competition and just caliper drivers. So, I feel like anytime you're coming in from one of those lower series, you kind of question if you're ready or even capable of, of running up front at that level. And, you know, we were fortunate enough in the truck series, like you said, to, to win the rookie of the year and win a race and run up front a lot. So it, it just is nice to be able to do that. And it kind of just, you know, puts your confidence up. And I feel like racing is so big and having your confidence up goes a long way. Let's look ahead. Things are progressing. Of course, you're racing sprint cars tonight at the dirt track, like we said, the Indiana 250 on Sunday with the Xfinity Series. Will we maybe see you at the Brickyard July 4th weekend next year? I hope so. I I highly doubt it, though. I feel like that's a huge step up, honestly, going to the Cup Series. And, you know, I still experience-wise have so much less experience than even the guys I'm racing against in the Xfinity Series right now. So, I feel like next year, if, if everything goes the way I would want it to, I think I need another year of the Xfinity Series. Um, and then hopefully the following year go to Cup. You know, the run in the Brickyard would be a dream come true for a guy like myself. So hopefully we can make it happen, and, and hopefully just one day I get to run it. But I want to do it in the right situation. I want to do it in something capable of winning. And when I feel like I'm, I'm capable of going there and running up front, not just being a part of the race, I want to be there contending for the win. Since your NASCAR career career has really taken off, of course, like you, like you said, you now live in Charlotte, uh, a little closer to all the action. How often do you come back home to Mitchell? Honestly, not near as much as I'd like to. I, I normally just get to come back uh, just for Christmas anymore. And uh, the Indianapolis weekend, obviously, got to come back a little bit early. But I don't get here near as much as I would like to. But I definitely miss Indiana. It's it's a place that's always going to be home to me. It's uh, I think it's the best state in, in the country. So. I don't know. Hopefully I can get back a lot more next year, but uh, these past couple of years have just been tough not being able to get back. That's for sure. I, I agree. We're number one of the 50. Uh, Chase Briscoe, driver of the 98 Ford, uh, number 98 Ford for Stuart Haas Racing in the NASCAR Xfinity Series. And most importantly, fellow Hoosier. Chase, what a pleasure having you on. We're rooting for you. Thanks for coming on All In. Yeah, thanks for having me. And up next, we'll hear from another Hoosier driver, NASCAR superstar Ryan Newman, born and raised in South Bend. A reminder, today's show is pre-recorded. It's tough to get these guys to come on live this close to the big race weekend, but we appreciate their time. Back in two minutes. This is All In. All in. I'm Matt Pelser. NASCAR has a lot of fans in Indiana. A lot of drivers come from here as well. We already heard from Chase Briscoe, and now we want to bring Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series driver Ryan Newman into the mix. Ryan, thank you for your time today. No problem. How are you? I'm great. Sorry to hear about the spin on Sunday. Darlington got a little rough, huh? Yeah, we were struggling um, just having raw speed and got a little nudge from behind that didn't do us any favors. We should have rebounded from that and still didn't, so we... um 
didn't have a good Darlington. It's my favorite racetrack, but um, we're still in the hunt, and uh, that means a lot. Yeah, if you didn't see the race, I'll catch you up here. Ryan, you were spun out, ended up a lap down, came back, finished 23rd. It was a rough race otherwise with the weather being bad uh, as well. It didn't wrap up till late. I'm sure that's never fun when you already know it's not going too well with an incident like that early on. Yeah, it was, um, you know, the rain, the rain deal is not that big of a deal, but in the end we just didn't have the race that we needed to have and could have gained some points, ended up losing some points and put ourselves in a, you know, less than ideal situation for this weekend, but it's also a situation I've been in before, and I've uh, come out on top, and I've come out on the bottom, so we'll just try it again. So let's just uh, kind of go through your early career, particularly the par- uh, part back home. You started racing quarter midgets when you were, what, five or six in New Carlisle, Indiana. What do you remember about the racing culture you grew up with in Indiana? Well, it was always family-oriented. That's one of the best things about racing in general is it's always about family and had friends at the same time. Um, you know, to me, it seems like the um, the friends you get from racing are friends that stick with you your whole life, and uh, I, that that was no different for me. So, just um, you know, quarter major racing in, in northern Indiana and southern Michigan and a few other places we went to was always a lot of fun and always great memories. Yeah. So your your career started gaining speed, pun totally intended. Uh, so I want to then jump to some moments when when coming back home was exciting, like say the first time you got to do Lucas oil raceway at that time, IRP or maybe something else, what were some big proud to be back home moments? Oh, I guess my first big win was the night before the 500 in 1997. That was, that was a huge race kind of, you know, TV, a TV race, um, you know, big special race, especially being the night before the 500, um, around all the racing community. That was, that was really huge for my racing career. I imagine winning Brickyard in 2013 was big too. Yeah, but that was that was uh, 14 years later. So um, <laughs> yeah, you, you got to when you're climbing a ladder, you got to do one step at a time, or at least try to do one step at a time. And if you make two or three steps, that's fine. But I um, I will always remember that win in 1997. That was really special. Well, since then, of course, you've had an incredible career. You won NASCAR's Rookie of the Year in 2002, Driver of the Year the following year, Daytona in 2008, of course, Brickyard in 2013, like we said. But let's let's leave the racing world for a few minutes. We'll talk about Rescue Ranch. You and your wife have a passion for helping animals, and you decided to help out in a big way. Tell us about that. We used to educate kids about animals, domestic animals, wild animals, and agricultural animals, and use the uh, field trip style, classroom style education to teach those kids how to be responsible and respectful to the animals in general. And hopefully they'll, they'll be able to share it with their friends and their family and get the message across. Uh, there's so many kids now that have used technology to their benefit, um, but it doesn't benefit the animals all the time. So we're just trying to do what we can to kind of give back to the animal. And you do all kinds of things. There's an emergency vet clinic on site. You facilitate foster programs, therapeutic writing, and youth outreach. I know that NASCAR keeps you pretty busy. Is this pretty much your wife Chrissy's operation? Well, it's um, yeah, it's definitely a lot of what she does and uh, and her goals and aspirations to make a difference in our community, but also for the animals and you know the racing side of it gives us a um, a, a footprint uh, and people and a fan base to uh, connect with, and that makes a big difference. And you've contributed a lot to the uh, Humane Society uh, in North Carolina, where you currently live, as I understand it, too, right? Yeah, we try to do a lot with um, the Humane Societies, mostly with the, um, the adoption programs as well as the spaying and neutering so that the uh, overpopulation of pets is not out of control or at least is in more control than it could be so that we're not euthanizing innocent lives. That, to me, is one of the most important things is to keep alive the things that are unconditionally loving to us because even people aren't unconditionally loving. 
Well, Ryan Newman, welcome back home for a great weekend of racing. Weather looks good for the first time in years. Do you feel good about Sunday? Oh, I do. I look forward to it. It's a challenge of a racetrack, but it's a lot of fun, and if you get some track position, you hopefully can keep it. So we just got to put ourselves in the right position. Well, good luck at the Brickyard, and thanks so much for coming on All In. All right, thank you. And that's all for the NASCAR portion of today's show. We want to thank NASCAR for connecting us with Ryan Newman, who you just heard, and Chase Briscoe in the last segment, and the Speedway for making Doug Bowles available. We're going to stay in Speedway to close out today's show with a true crime conversation. November 17th, 1978. If you're a true crime buff, that date might ring in your memory as the night of the Burger Chef kidnappings and subsequent murders. Four young employees of the former Burger Chef at 5725 Crawfordsville Road were victims of a heinous crime that to this day remains unsolved. Well, one central Indiana author has spent quite a bit of time exploring that unfortunate piece of history. The book is The Burger Chef Murders in Indiana, and she joins us now. Julie Young, thanks for stopping by. No problem. Thanks for having me. Forty years have gone by. We still don't have an answer. Nope. And you explained that you knew that you weren't going to be the one to solve the crime. You also say that you knew that writing this book would be tough, and it turns out that it certainly was. Why then did you decide to write it? Um, because I don't want the case forgotten. Because obviously anything that they cannot solve in 40 years, I'm not going to solve in two. Um, and it would be kind of – cheap for me to try, you know, I mean, given how much time and effort has been put toward this case. But I thought it was very important because so much has been written about it and oftentimes only in a retrospective kind of way, um, you know, a quick summation of the case that I thought it was kind of important to go back and sort of talk about the events leading up to it, you know, the initial reaction, you know, and then the subsequent reactions over the years as different developments um some promising, some not so much. So out. your your goal was essentially to be a reminder yes. that this yes. happened. Four young people, Daniel Davis, 16, Jane Freet, 20, Ruth Ellen Shelton, 17, Mark Fleming, 16. Those are the victims. You dedicate the book to them. Mm-hmm. How much was focusing on them part of the writing process? Did you try to just stick with the facts or was there an emotional component to your motivation? Um, obviously, as a as a writer, you want to stick to the facts. Um but anybody who grew up in that era knew somebody who worked at Burger Chef. It could have been one of them. You know, it could have easily been, you know, I had friends who had brothers and sisters that were teenagers, you know, who worked in fast food. So there was always that idea in the back of your head after you learn about the case and, you know, kind of follow it for a while. Gee, this could have been anybody. So and as a parent, you know, I can I cannot imagine what it would be like uh, to pass not knowing who or why my child, who killed my child and why they were killed. Um, so that was kind of important to me, too. I mean, I really tried to take a very sensitive approach to it. I did not try to go into any kind of conspiracy theories or anything like that. I really kept it very much to what was publicly known about the case. You you also write that you knew exactly what you were doing that night, the night that it happened. Yes, I do. I was... Which is which is kind of a, I mean, look, this is a sad and serious story, but this is this is kind of an interesting, amusing aside. It was it was very interesting. When I first started, I 
kind of just scanned the newspaper to get a sense of what was going on in the city at that time, what movies were playing, what was on TV that night, you know, little things like that to just sort of get me into that mindset of the late 70s. And I happened to notice that the Star Wars Holiday Special aired the night of the kidnappings. And you're right. It's kind of a, you know, a terrible connection, I suppose. But I definitely remember watching that show because it was so awful. It only aired once. (laughs) And um, at any rate, I do remember watching that show. I remember having to be home because back then we didn't think there was going to be another Star Wars movie. And Star Wars, and coincidentally, Star Wars was, uh, or I'm sorry, Burger Chef was the only place where you could find Star Wars merchandise right after the movie, the original movie came out, because they weren't prepared for it to become such a phenomenon. And Burger Chef, uh, the corporation, had the good foresight to license a deal with Lucasfilm, and that's where you picked up your Star Wars posters and your Star Wars glasses. And so Burger Chef was definitely my favorite restaurant, you know, as a, as a Star Wars kid, you know. Um, so I thought that was really unique. And, you know, there were very few days of my life I can absolutely account for, certainly not in my childhood. But I absolutely know where I was the night of that kidnapping. You go through the timeline of events in detail in the book, obviously. But what did you uncover that was surprising to you that, that people who just followed maybe the news surrounding this case might not know? Really, one thing that a lot of people, when they hear about the, or when they've read the book, is the thing that really hits them is the fact that it came on the heels of two other main events. Um, it came after the Julia Skyfer's killing in July in her garage, and then on top of it, the week-long Speedway bombings. So you had two very strange events that at the time when the Burger Chef kidnappings happened, um, they didn't know who was responsible for the other two. So... There was this idea of what is going on in Speedway, and a lot of people who maybe have not followed it or only learned about it after the fact or didn't live here at that time and don't remember the other two events are really kind of surprised to find out how this all sort of happens within months of each other. And so while the timeline of the actual murder and or kidnapping and subsequent murders, I think the timeline of that is more or less – well-documented, I think it's the broader context that sometimes people don't understand or don't realize or don't understand. And also the fact that the kids were found on the same day that Jim Jones and company down in Guyana drank the Kool-Aid. Also an Indianapolis tie. Oh, my goodness. It was a big day for Indiana, front page of news. <sighs> wow. I, no, I'm not familiar with the other two Speedway crimes. Did they were they did they eventually become solved? Um, yeah, but there was a there was a gentleman who was sort of arrested in connection with them. Yeah. With so, both of them? With both of them. Oh, wow. Was there connect? Was there any connection found or suspected uh, with this one? At one time, there was a very, very loose um, thought that there might be a connection, but there wasn't. Years go by after the murders, uh, a few leads here and there, but nothing goes anywhere. And then in 1986, we get a confession. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, confession in quotes. Um, a man by the name of Donald Ray Forrester ultimately ended up confessing to the crime. And there was a lot of speculation as to what his motivation would be for confessing to the crime. Did he have anything to do with it? Was he actually the one who committed the crime or was he simply there? Was he a part of it, but not the culprit? And it was quite a quite a story that spanned two years to get this confession out of him. And then, of course, the very next day he recants. And um, and honestly, they were never able to bring it to like a grand jury because you only get one bite at that apple, you know, and if, and considering 
the fact that this crime had affected so many people in the city and the families really wanted answers, nobody was going to feel good about about possibly trying a guy on speculation. Um, and so he was never brought, brought before a grand jury. Keep in mind, though, he was already a guest of the state. And uh, so it wasn't like he was going anywhere anytime soon. Um, so, he, no, he never was actually convicted for it. Well, there have been a few times over the years that, that people have come forward claiming to have information. What What's kept that from furthering the case? Is, is there any talk of going back to any of that? Um, well, I know that as of as of obviously last November, you know, they released a picture of the knife that killed Jane Freed and um, or the knife blade and, you know, suggested that perhaps somebody might know something about an individual who may have carried a similar knife or something like that. Um, that might lead to something. Obviously, now DNA evidence or forensic testing has become so much better than, you know, that it wasn't even existent back then. So it's hard telling. I mean, you never know. They, The state police have certainly said they still get calls on the case every year. Um, a lot of times the leads they've already checked out um, or it doesn't go anywhere. So it's hard telling. It's really hard telling. There's still a detective on the case, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And as far as I know, it'll remain open until... You know, until it's solved one way or the other. Since there's since there's interest, to the, like you said, that comes uh, people come forward every year. Uh, I mean, uh, there's got to be hope in your mind that uh, someday we have answers. You know, there is. And more importantly, and something that was very important to me because I knew I would not solve this case um, when I wrote it or when I wrote the book. Um, one thing that I think is important is when talking about hope and solving cases there are other unsolved cases out there that are a little fresher than this one. And, you know, whether it's the Delphi girls, whether it's Lauren Spear, whether it's the case of Denise Flum from Connorsville, you know, in the mid eighties, um, you know, there are cases similar to this that happen all the time, the seemingly random thing that, um, you know, somebody had to have known something, you know, why isn't that person coming forward or how did this happen? You know, was it just that random, you know, that something just awful and terrible happened, to an individual or individuals. And so what's really important is, no, the Burger Chef case should never be forgotten, but neither should these other ones, you know, that may not be quite as high profile as this particular one. Something else that was very interesting that I had forgotten about, actually, in 2015, a former coworker of mine, Jake Query from Sports Talk Station WNDE, found out that Mark Fleming's grave, one of the victims, um, his grave at Crown Hill Cemetery was actually unmarked. Yes. And he's a big local history buff, Jake is, and so <laughs> what he does does not surprise me at all. Uh, but I had forgotten about this. What did Jake do? He um, got together people who wanted to donate from um, Speedway High School who were um, in Mark's class or adjacent, and they bought him a they brought him a headstone. And I was able to go visit the grave, and it's very nice. It puts the year that he would have graduated um, from Speedway on there, and I think that's really nice for them to do. Jake has thousands of Twitter followers, and so they all kind of came through really fast, too. Yes, yes. Um, it didn't take any time at all. So, And it's it's a very nice little stone. And, you know, I, you know, it's things like that. You know, we don't want these kids forgotten. You know, we don't – they were here. They were real people. They matter, you know. And so, um, you know, they – their lives had tons of promise that was all taken away. You write that in its heyday, Burger Chef was the second most popular fast food chain in the country behind McDonald's. No small player. They were they were based in Indianapolis, too. So there there was a lot of pride here for Burger Chef. Uh, they sold to a Canadian company in 1982, around four years after the murders. And they went defunct in 1996. How much impact 
did the murders seem to have on the demise of Burger, Burger Chef, or is that in no way related? I don't know that it does. You know, obviously, I think we're kind of biased. We sort of, you know, are a little more connected to both entities. But from what I read, it seemed like the franchise numbers were going down. Um, to what degree and why that might have expedited, I'm not sure. But bad publicity is bad publicity. Yes. Um, you know, but robberies in fast food places were not that unusual. You know, now, obviously, a quadruple homicide, you know, makes it a little bit different. But it's not like, you know, that was the other thing. When I was researching, I was like, well, how unusual was it for there to be a robbery gone wrong in a restaurant? And, you know, there were there were cases, you know, throughout the country. And I don't know that it impacted a lot of franchises, per se. Maybe not as much as this one. I don't know. Anything else you'd care to share about the book whatsoever? I just hope that everybody realizes that it was never my intention to solve it. It is not my intention to exploit any of the victims. It was my intention to treat everybody with sensitivity and just to simply put the facts in place in such a way that the story will always be preserved. And to honor the victims. Uh, The book is The Burger Chef Murders in Indiana. It's out now. I assume we can find it on local interest shelves across the state. Absolutely. Julie Young, thanks for your work and uh, thanks for coming on All In. Thank you. Coming up next time, we'll take a look at the Indiana RV industry and its role as a bellwether for economic recessions. That'll be Tuesday at 1 p.m. I'm Matt Pelser. Thanks for listening. This is All In.